Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Dylan Brown. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day from 10 to 5 for curbside pickup and masked in-store browsing. You can also shop us online at www.skylightbooks.com. You can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page crowdcast.io forward slash skylight books and now on to the show laura worrell's writing has been published in the los angeles review of books huffington post the rumpus the writer salon racialicious post road magazine and the boston globe laura is a graduate of the creative writing program at the vermont College of Fine Arts and has attended residencies at the Breadloaf Writers Conference and the Tin House Writers Workshop. She's taught creative writing and literature through the Emerging Voices program at Penn America Los Angeles, at Writing Workshops Los Angeles, and at academic institutions in Los Angeles and Boston. Matthew Caillé is the author of six books. His short stories, poems, and essays have appeared in numerous publications, most notably the Saturday Evening Post and the Los Angeles Times. He is the recipient of a Shakespeare Award, a Short Story America Prize, and a New England Book Festival Award. Heaven and Other Zip Codes, his debut novel, which he'll be discussing today, and most recently published book, has been hailed as, quote, a postmodern masterpiece by Midwest Book Review. Uh, and without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Matthew and Laura. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a delight. I'm happy to talk about the book and to be here with my good friend and fellow writer, Laura. So I'm excited to get started. I'm glad to be here too, Matt. Can't wait to hear what you're going to read today. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm going to start off here with a little sample from the book. It's kind of funny. It's my first novel, so it's been challenging to find a selection to read that doesn't give too much away. I'm used to reading poems and short stories and kids' books, which you can, which you can kind of read an entire thing. So this is kind of fun. So uh, the book follows four characters, a tutor, a young boy, a stepdad, and um, the stepdad's wife, Cersei, who's the, kind of one of the main characters, I would say. And this is a scene where the tutor has gotten a little too far, too far involved with the family for whom he works. 
he starts taking out young Theo for painting lessons. And so this is just a little section when they begin their little painting lessons and go for a little field trip. Emerson told Theo about the spot where they'd chosen to paint, a place suggested by Madame Fournier, only a half a mile from Abalone Cove. It was called Portuguese Bend, a serpentine road that was built atop an active fault. Because of the constant seismic activity, plumbing pipes were exposed above ground, and every couple of months, the city brought in construction crews to repair the torn asphalt. What Emerson loved about the area was that no one bothered painting here due to the road's volatile nature. Clusters of fennel and mustard plants carpeted the hills, and whenever the wind worked eastward, a trace of anise hung in the air. Emerson watched the boy's eyes widen with every tidbit of knowledge regarding a plant or a bird or the endemic Palos Verdes blue butterfly. When you live somewhere, you know nothing about it. It's just home, Emerson said. All the history just comes with it. Then someone comes to town and tells you everything about it. You're there just shrugging your shoulders. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. I know that's how it was for me in Vermont. People would tell me about maple trees and tapping for syrup, and I'd be like, okay, cool. Passed it over. My waffles are getting cold. Were you a good kid? Theo asked. He painted the curvy line of Portuguese Bend, paying attention to the shapes that jetted into the road. No, he said. I got in trouble a lot. What's the worst thing you've ever done as a man? There's a lot of time left for that one, Emerson. Emerson mixed white into blue, trying to pinpoint the sky's shade. How about you? I once stole a Snickers from the market down the road. Yeah? My mom said I couldn't have it, so I just put it in my pocket. It was easy, but I felt bad about it, so I told my mom, and she made me take it back and apologize. Look at you. Yeah. Theo got back to it, working his brush in gentle strokes, staying steady in one portion of the canvas for a long time. He detailed what could later be filled in, and Emerson felt his limbs tingle as he took in the boy's work. It was the first time in his life that his passion had been caught by someone else, that he'd successfully passed his love on to another person. More often than not, he had to find a way to talk about painting that would make others feel included, comparing it to their passions, fantasy football or bowling. But painting was not fantasy football, nor was it bowling. The light is prettier here than in other spots we've painted, Theo said. Is it always like this? It's always interesting, even when it's not sunny, even when it's not bright or warm. Since Emerson had many depictions from this location, he didn't paint the road or the ocean, opting instead to draw Theo. He didn't tell him because he thought it might distract Theo from his own work. So Emerson worked from memory most of the time, refreshing his imagination every now and then by stealing a peek especially when he needed a specific detail, like how the boy was holding his brush or how his hair was sitting on his ears or how his shoelaces were moments from being untied. I wonder why no one else paints here, Theo said. They're not as smart as us, Emerson said. Hey, have you been to Dominic's Steakhouse? No. Nice? It's good. Went there with Hoyt and Mom the other day. I hear it's good. They have girlfriend dishes, so that might be good for you, you know. To bring Carly? What do you mean, girlfriend dishes? Like oysters? I don't know. Some of the things on the menu had GF written next to them. Things guys can order for their girlfriends, I guess. Emerson set his brush down on his easel. Easel. I think that stands for gluten-free. Oh, God. That makes so much more sense. 
I thought it was weird. I mean, girls love pasta and it wasn't picked as a GF item. After their laugh settled, the only sound that could be detected was the sigh of wind. And Emerson turned toward Theo to see exactly how the boy's legs were bent. The Emerson said in a whisper, I'm being really serious right now. Do not move, okay? What? Do not move, Emerson said. I need you to listen to me. I need you to trust me. Emerson stared hard at a spot a few feet behind Theo, coercing the boy to line his eyes with the dusty rattlesnake whose split tongue licked the air. Be still, he said again. He heeded his own advice too. His mouth tightened, his molars adhered, saliva pooled in the back of his throat. The snake, however, disregarded the instructions, inching its way closer to Theo, its rattle now up and shaking, the sound of its heavy scales grating the dirt. Theo quivered. Mr. Toffler, he said, his right Nike slipping loose. And just that, the sound of rubber against earth startled the snake. It struck at once, a flash from the ground, its mouth wide, fangs plunging into Theo's calf. Shit, Emerson yelled as the snake slithered into a patch of tall grass, its tote body blending into the weeds. The rattle stopped, but Emerson still heard the sound in his ears. Emerson knew panic wouldn't help, but his insides were not at Sure, he'd seen the sign warning of snakes in these parts, but he'd seen so many signs in his life and never actually spotted the thing they warned against. He needed to view everything as a step-by-step. -step. Get Theo to the car, take him to the hospital, stay calm. Lucky for Emerson, Theo was light, so Emerson flung the boy over his shoulder before tearing up the hillside to his car. His legs churned and prickled. Even though life was more important than usual, the tick of seconds to slow motion quality, and his actions were deliberate. Keep talking to me, Emerson said. How are you feeling, he said, dropping the boy into the passenger seat. Before he knew it, he whipped the car around, nearly taking out a fire hydrant, and peeled onto the main road. The hospital isn't far, Emerson said. Not far at all. Just down here. Not far at all. He ripped the shifter back, and the engine growled behind him as he zoomed past cars over double yellow lines. How's Fallon doing, Emerson asked. His voice rushed. He took a turn hard enough to make the tires scream. Theo held on. Is this really the best time for this conversation? She's good. That's good. Am I going to die? Theo asked. Is this the kind of thing that kills people or just deforms them forever? Emerson grated, ground gears and downshifted in a second around a tight bend. Color drained from the boy's face. You're not going to die. So it went well with Lysander and Hermia? What are they going to do to me at the hospital? I don't know. It's getting really big. Look, does it hurt? Yes, and it's numb too. Shit. Emerson pummeled his horn, then darted through a stop sign after scanning the traffic. If anything, we're both going to die on this drive. Hey, Mr. Toffler, Theo said. If I die, can you tell my mom that I love her? Emerson honked again and flipped a guy off. Sure, buddy. And the boy added, his voice low, can you tell yourself that I love you too? Even with the Volkswagen's RPMs high, Emerson heard the boy's sniffles, so he reached over and cupped Theo's head, feeling his soft hair against his palm. He let the words hang in the cabin, careful not to say something that would scare them away. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. That was great. That was one of the many scenes that I was reading as I was about to go to sleep and wanting to go to sleep and then couldn't and kept reading. So thank you for keeping oh, me awake and thank <laughs> you for writing such a great book. I really loved it. And oh, good. 
I Thank wanna, you so much. Sure. And I want to start by giving listeners uh, an idea of what the plot is like. Um, so you've got a, the male tutor and the mother of the child. He's tutoring. They fall for each other. Um, her husband is unfaithful. He starts sort of getting the sense that something is a little uh, uncomfortable for him, we'll say, about the closeness. And then we've also got um, this triangle further complicated by Theo, the boy who's being tutored, who has complicated feelings in some ways for all three uh, adults. It's a really, really riveting story and you do so many interesting things with it. But I wanna start in sort of a unique place because we're friends and I know that um, the story was inspired in part by real life events. So I'm wondering what was it about those real life events that made you wanna turn them into fiction and what was your process of doing so? Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. You know, I think it was a interesting, uh, I was kind of gifted this nice story in a lot of ways. I was an elementary school teacher for a long time and then kind of fell in love with writing and was trying my best to find a way to write in the mornings when I was freshest, but still be able to support myself. So I started a tutoring business probably uh, like 10 years ago now, maybe a little longer, like 11 or 12. And one of my very first families that I did that with, um, I kind of had a boy like Theo in my life and I was about 25 and he was uh, kind of an outcast, a very old soul. I felt like I was hanging out with my grandfather in a way, even though he was like 12, you know, he, he was like playing chess and he hated technology and he was like into polo shirts and buttoning his polos all the way to like the last button and um, into food. And he just felt like a very soulful kid that I wanted to protect his innocence too, in a way, you know, um, you could feel that the world was starting to impose its way on him. And I found myself really caring about that boy and working with that family late at night. And then the mother would often like offer me food. I was there at 8 PM. We all kind of developed this little pseudo family. The father was gone often. And, you know, one day jokingly, like, we were around the table and I, yeah, I think it was like the boy who kind of mentioned, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this forever? Oh, wow. And, you know, and she said, yeah. Oh, that would be something. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, like two months later they had moved and they were in a different town, but mm. it always kind of played in my mind. Like, you know, what if you say yes to those things? What's it look like? So this story kind of started there and it lived in my brain for a long time until about, let's see, the fall of 2015 or so, 2014, I think, when I wrote it as a short story. That's where I was most comfortable. It just didn't work. It was too big. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to explore it and kind of see, like, what happens if you say yes to these things that we think are silly? That's great. I love that. I think that's a good writing prompt for anyone. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was really excited about and interested, as you know, I teach writing and students often write about their lives. Um, and situations from their own lives. So how did you separate yourself from the character and from those characters in the actual story? To, and how did the fiction brain, as I've heard you call it, start mm -hmm. taking over? So you did you feel more that you were just taking the situation and totally creating something new with it? Or did you have to find yourself navigating between you in that real life situation and what you were trying to create? Yeah, that's good. I think I wanted to give myself a little distance. So I waited a good amount of time. And then, you know, I think it's easy to identify me as Emerson, because I was like the same age and like, we're, you know, but really, I found myself in all the characters. So 
everyone kind of, everyone's age changed. I made the dad a stepdad. Mm -hmm. I gave Theo a very different backstory. I gave Emerson a very different backstory than me. I gave Cersei a very kind of religious component that all these things weren't there, but I kind of made them my own and um, made, it, made it more accessible, you know, so that when I was thinking about them, I was thinking about them, not the family that I had known once upon a time. They were like vastly different people, different names, different ages, different sure. everything. Yeah, and I think that was good to have a little bit of distance so that it didn't feel like I was writing a memoir or something, you know? And what I like that you're doing here um, is every section is, is told from a different character's perspective. So we are with Hoyt, the stepfather. We are with Cersei, the mother. We are with Theo in separate sections. So we have a multi-point of view structure, which mm -hmm. I think is really exciting because we get sort of see the situation from everyone's perspectives. So very often we don't necessarily get that sort of triangle story from everybody's perspective. What made you decide to do it that way? Um, and I'm kind of curious, whose point of view did you find it most challenging to inhabit? Oh, that's a great question. You know, that was, I'm glad you enjoyed it, first of all, because that was mm -hmm. kind of the stylistic risk of this book mm -hmm. was, you know, I'm going to try to tell it. Um, I basically kept a big chart on the wall when I wrote this and said, I would like put their first initial mm -hmm. and say like, oh, I've already heard from Emerson. I need to hear from Hoyt now. And I always tried to balance it. And it became, it became fun to have everyone express their way. You know, we always say like, oh, there's two sides of an argument or whatever it might be. But really when you read fiction, you don't get the other person's argument. So I wanted to make everyone very human and kind of see their motivation for all their actions. And it came to me, because I really couldn't decide on a point of view. I tried many times to write it from Emerson's point of view and from Cersei's mm -hmm. and from Theo's. And I just was like, I kind of like all of them. They all have their distinct voice. What if I kind of switched it up and made it kind of readable that way and kept the word length about the same every 2000 words, we click over to another character, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I did answer your second question. I found it the hardest to write from the point of view of Hoyt, mm -hmm. um, the, the stepdad. Yeah, I think he had a very different angle and it, it was challenging. You know, I think some might call him the villain of this book. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes I wanted to make him a realistic human that just, uh, you know, without giving too much away, that struggles with some very obvious things for some people. But sometimes, you know, it's hard. Like these, these things in life, these choices we make that we think are for all of us, sometimes maybe aren't. Mm -hmm. You know? I definitely want to talk about Hoyt and, and your... Um, your relationship with him as his author. Um, what, and, and I don't want to give away too much either. I mean, we know early on in the book that he hasn't entirely been faithful, but I think sure. when we meet him, I think he evolves throughout the book and, mm -hmm. and he is, is definitely a layered character. But one thing I'm also curious about before we get to Hoyt is Circe. And I think when, you know, writers, especially nowadays, write about the opposite gender, if we're going to use that binary, um, they're always questioned, like, how was that for you? Mm -hmm. So how was it for you to write this, this female character? Yeah, I loved her. You know, I, that, that was like one of my first characters. I thought she had a very interesting story. Mm -hmm. um, she was, to me, the kind of the heart of this book. Mm -hmm. this, she's very selfless. She's very religious. 
Mm-hmm. She's trying so hard to do all the right things. Mm-hmm. And it comes at a cost of her own happiness many times. Mm-hmm. Those are often the, I see that a lot with people, like all the, so many women in my life, they kind of right. put other people ahead of themselves. And I, I felt for her because of that. You know, she doesn't, she kind of gave up a lot of her life. Mm-hmm. And I wanted her to be happy in a weird way. It was weird. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, well, did you, so as a writer, was it a struggle for you to continue to make bad things happen to her? Because yes, it you was. You had to for fiction? It really, you're yeah. absolutely right. It was. Yeah. And like many times, even like I wrote this book a few times and endings were different. And mm-hmm. I like it, it kind of took its own way. But you're absolutely right. You just felt bad when things mm-hmm. wouldn't work out for her or, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she, and she kind of, um, when we were talking about point of view, I really thought this was going to be like her book for mm-hmm. a while, like all her story. And then I thought, but in order to elevate her story, we really need to hear from her son mm-hmm. because they're kind of like one and the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then Theo was probably my favorite character to write because he was a lot like me as a kid. I felt like I kind of put myself in him and mm-hmm. had inspiration from the other ones. But I remember just like, I was raised by a lot of women and being like called a mama's boy and wanting mm-hmm. to like, you know, there's times when Theo feels like he's safe to be a mama's boy at his house and there's friends aren't around. I felt very much like that in my life many times. Like, oh, no one's around right now. I can fully be a mama's boy and not feel guilty about it. So <laughs> that was kind of fun to put that in there. That's great. That's great. Yeah. It's funny. I, well, I'm going to move on because you, you're saying so many great things that are touching on so many of the questions that I have for you. So sure. let's move on to Emerson a little bit, who's attracted both to Circe and Theo, obviously in different ways. Um, what do you think it is about the two of them as a unit, right? We get the idea that, you know, Circe's an attractive woman. Mm-hmm. We get the idea that Theo's an adorable kid who's mm-hmm. you know, precocious and, and interesting and unusual. What is it for Emerson that you think attracts him to that? Yeah, I think it's kind of the song of family to me. Okay. It's like, that's kind of what drives this story. What do we want our family to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, baggage is kind of a word that we think of in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I think Emerson likes a little baggage. There's a passage in the book where he says, you know, baggage bred depth and yeah. depth created womanhood. Right. And, uh, by being with Circe, she was a woman and it made him feel like more of a man. And I feel like mm-hmm. there is a little bit of that, that he, he likes the challenge and he wants that kind of immediate family mm-hmm. kind of stepping into something that feels familiar to him, especially as an only child growing yeah. up with his parents in Vermont and being very close to them. So, um, that I think is the appeal for him. Yeah. So one of the things, and I, w- I wonder if you uh, intended this, but I feel like there's a lot of loss in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, even though in, in, in many ways it's a love story and lots of different types of love and, and so many other things that are happening, you know, talking about marriage and family, et cetera, but it's also, there's loss. And I don't want to go into details so as not to spoil it for anyone mm-hmm. who hasn't read it yet, but I think it's, there's a strong undercurrent there of loss. So is there a connection between love and loss in your mind, at least for these characters that draws them together? Yeah. It's actually so funny that you say that because I feel like I don't even do it by design anymore, but everything I write, has kind of the same, you know, my first book was called Los Angeles, Lost mm-hmm. with two S's. Right. And it was a theme of short, it was a short story collection bound by the themes of loss and the locale of LA. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a lot of like heartbreak in there too. I think it's impossible to have love without some heartbreak. 
-hmm. there's you know and vice versa mm -hmm. so um yeah, there's like a very natural evolution there that you almost have to sustain a certain amount of heartbreak before you can love properly. Yeah. And it'd be cool if we could see that like on a meter, you know, and then feel like, oh, I've almost reached my level <laughs> where I, I can fully be invested in someone and understand how that feels. But yeah, you, you have to lose people. You have to learn how that that cycle works, I feel like. And to be it makes you appreciative, I think, is what loss does. Yeah, and it would make it a lot easier. I wish we could have that sort of chart so we can know, you know, make some decisions about what to do so we could get our love quotient up. Yeah, um, me too. So at many points, the characters are contemplating the challenges and rewards of love. I mean, it's about love, right? Um, mm -hmm. And Emerson laments that we haven't come a long way with love, right? He and Theo talk about it a lot. Theo's got a lot of questions for him. Um, Madame Fournier has this lovely passage about staring into your beloved's eyes, and if she asks what, you know she's not the one. I, I loved that. That was mm. one of my favorite parts. And I wonder, not necessarily what you think the book is saying about sure. love, but rather what questions you think the book is asking about love. And you, you touched on that a little bit with heartbreak and loss, but, but mm -hmm. what else do you think the book is offering us, asking us about love. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, are we really willing to pay the price to be happy mm -hmm. so many times? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think we kind of know the steps, but sometimes we need a push. And mm -hmm. what, what does happiness really look like? And once you get it, is it, is it everything you thought it would be? You know, like mm -hmm. there's some sacrifices that have to be made. Even if you're in a quote unquote, uh, poor situation or difficult situation and mm -hmm. you know, the steps, to achieve happiness, are you going to be willing to take them? Sometimes I think that's the big question in this book. You know, mm -hmm. if happiness is laid out for you, are you going to be able to grab a hold of it? Yeah, I'd like to think so. I'd like to, you know, I, I grew up with my mom and dad not not speaking the same language when they met, and so oh, really? um, I think I there's always that. been yeah. My, my, uh -huh. Well, like yeah, they, they met. My dad only spoke French. My mom only spoke English. And they like found a way and i just oh, wow i think that's maybe a, a part of me that you know it's part of my dna now that's like wondering you know are you willing to like go for it if it's there in front of you and, and i think that's what this book was about for me what's really nice about that story with your parents is that the, the idea that love just sort of exists whether or not you can speak it right or communicate mm -hmm. it directly and i think that in some ways that happens in this book as well, right? That there's something that's happening between Circe and Emerson, between Emerson and Theo, right? That's that's really powerful and unspoken, of course, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in a way, the book sort of seems to set up a dichotomy between family and love, like true love in some ways. Like for Circe, Hoyt represents family, um, Emerson, this sort of true love, and Emerson seems sort of cautious about his love for Circe. Yeah. because he fears it may not survive or become meaningful if it can't be bolstered by family. And even Theo seems to recognize, you know, that his mother's experiences of love and meaning are different within the context of the family versus the connection with Emerson. So mm. do you feel like that's a fair reading? Um, and if so, can you talk about that sort of dichotomy? And if not, what are we to make of the characters' pulls, all of their to pulls toward or away from sort of love and family. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, they go for it and they have these these moments, but I don't know if they actually kind of know what they're doing. You know, mm -hmm. it's a weird it's a weird situation. Mm -hmm. um, they act in the moment and so many times that's what love is. Right. It's like you don't really get to sit and deliberate. 
for months at a time the way you would if you're like applying to college. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these love decisions are some of the biggest that come around in your life. And you have to make these kind of, I don't want to say split second, but you have to make kind of a quicker decision than mm-hmm. you'd like to for something with that amount of power. Yeah. I think so. There is that. Yeah. I think they're, they're trying to do the best they can in the moment with what they have and also try to figure out what looks the best. I think there is a little bit of that in this book, you know? Okay. Hoyt, Hoyt works with PR and I think right. he, he thinks like family looks good but right. I don't know how invested he is. Yeah, it's like an ad campaign for him a little bit, so. Well, let's talk about Hoyt really quickly because I wanna make sure, sure talk a little bit more about your life as a writer, which I think is really sure. interesting. Um, so Hoyt, as you said, does sort of feel a little bit like the villain in this book, although he's much more complex and layered and interesting. Um, so how did you find him? How did you sort of justify himself for him as you were kind of writing him you know what I mean yeah yeah I think yeah it's really well said I think um Hoyt was was needed to kind of you know I think he's an extension of the fears I have surrounding love I think everybody likes the idea and then it's like will I be any good at it I think about that kind of stuff all the time will I be good at it will I be able to be a, a good husband a faithful husband a good father um he tries to, he makes a lot of very cohesive, intelligent arguments surrounding love. Um, you know, it's like, oh, well, Theo's not my blood. So maybe I'd be a better father if, if the kid had my last name, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And, but I don't know. I don't know if it's like intrinsic to Hoyt. And I think sometimes the song of family, like you want it, you want to play catch with your boy on the front lawn and all that, but are you willing to do the other stuff? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a, yeah, I think my fear surrounding love was the way I ended up writing Hoyt. He became very 3D to me. And I, I felt for him in a weird way, even though he was maybe the villain of this book. It's hard, you know, Theo's adorable. Um, Emerson's confused. Cersei's kind of a, a pious and disciplined mm-hmm. person. So Hoyt ends up just out of those characters being kind of the, the bad guy. Um, but he, he's complicated and... Yeah, and I think he's human, and I think we've all had moments of Hoyt. Like, I certainly am filled with them, so. And I think that's a really amazing generosity and a really great way to um, to think of it, right? That when you're trying to humanize that character and make them rich, how, how what are they afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes people real that's what makes them human and that's a way to access them in fact i think that would be a, a great writing prompt think of your deepest fears and turn them into a character um, i agree make them, yeah make them real um yeah. so let's talk a little bit about sort of writing in general and one of the things i admire about your writing and you as a person is that you are a romantic or at least in my eyes you are. I don't know if you think of thank you. that way. <laughs> yeah, thank um, you. More and more, I guess. And it's a compliment. Um, and there's a lot of romance in this book. Um, like the lines, there were shards of pain that glittered behind her bourbon eyes, jagged pieces of discomfort that he wanted to learn about and hopefully wash away, which is just like, oh, mm-hmm. Matt. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and so not only you, but also that you're able to come up with lines like that. And there, it adds a richness to this book and your work in general. And I feel like romance is missing from so much of contemporary literature and life. So I wonder what helps you maintain a sense of romance in your work and how you weave it into story 
in a way that feels real and authentic and rich. Oh, I'm so glad that it did that for you. That was like my mm -hmm. big fear with this book, you know? And it's funny when you shop a book like this, I'm the same way. I thought, oh, this has a lot of romance in it. Mm -hmm. This must be a romance book. And then when you start marketing a book as romance, you get people like, it's very different. It's like a lot of sex and people in barns and um, it's, <laughs> right. a, it's a very different market. So then you, you start thinking, I remember uh, Raquel Henry, a friend of mine said, oh, did you write a, a romance novel or did you write a love story? Mm -hmm. And then that changes the game a little bit publishing wise. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Like, it's interesting. I always am attracted to uh, love stories and have been for a long time. I think some of my favorite books at their heart, you know, like Madame Bovary and mm -hmm. Great Gatsby and Anna Karenina, very dark books um, are full of love. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of wanted to explore it in a way that was more authentic to me. You know, I, I didn't have the childhood of Flaubert and I didn't right. have those things. So I don't really want to fake it. I just wanted it to be uh, authentic to what I lived and that kind of thing. I, I do tend to be a bit of an optimist and see uh, people having moments of hardship, but not necessarily sustaining hardship for the rest of their lives. Like there is always a little bit of hope. Um, and so I think that maybe comes. Yeah, it's interesting, though. And. I think people can really help other people. I do think that. So I think there is that in my work with Emerson trying to find out about Circe's pain and, you know, pain, recognizing pain, being one of the things that lends itself to love many times is pain. Right. And, mm -hmm. and romance, when you, the true sense yeah. of romance, right? We, we have this idea, like you said, that romance is, you know, you're running through the rain and pledging undying love, but it's yeah. really about those sort of darker moments of our lives and connecting, you know, in, in those ways as well. I think it's really interesting what you said about your friend making that distinction between a romance and a love story. Yeah. Did you have that conversation in the process of writing or, and if so, how would that change the way, I, or did you, did you revise the book accordingly? Or if it, it sounds like maybe it was more once you were already finished and, and just sort of presenting it, how does that shift the storytelling for you? Yeah, it was definitely um, afterwards okay. in the marketing phase. You know, it's weird. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book kind of in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It was a short story, like I said, and it didn't work. And I just like was kind of done with a couple projects and wanting to get back to fiction. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of started this thing on a whim. Like, let's see where I am in five months. I just want to write a bad first draft of this novel. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I need to get it. I need to just get it out and see it. And then from there, I was like, oh, I think I've kind of gone. I, I went way over my word limit I was trying it like around 80,000 or 65 to 80,000 somewhere in there and it was like 130,000 so it was massive and needed to be trimmed and the ending was odd but it was there that I was like oh there's a lot of love in this story mm -hmm. and and yeah it was afterwards that I started even learning about romance versus love story you know mm -hmm. and um, how do you write a literary love story that kind of thing it's, it is kind of a genre that's not as popular as you would think in a lot of ways when when we have so many of our classics are really love stories and you mm -hmm. just mentioned them right these are the ones yeah. that we're going to be reading until the end of time and they're, yeah. and they're love stories at, at heart yeah. yeah 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 i agree with you so what i um have always wondered about you you know i'll work on a uh, short story for a couple of years or and you've conceived of written and published three books in the meantime, right? You've, um, you've written 
short story collections, you've written a children's book, you've written poetry collections, now you've written a novel. That's pretty much, those are all the genres, right? Is there anything that you That's haven't? You you, maybe it. a record, if a CD it. coming, I don't know if you plan it. <laughs> yes, but, I have a great banjo CD. <laughs> come to my next, yeah. Um, so, um, which genre fits you best? Like, which one do you gravitate toward more? Or is it more that you, you've got an idea or you've got the impulse and the genre tells you, or the, the idea, the impulse tells you how it needs to be written? Yeah, it's that second one. It's like, it took me a long time to even get, like you articulated it so well, mm -hmm. but it took me a long time to figure that out, that I come up with an idea and then I try to say like, what container holds the story the best? Mm -hmm. So if it's something image-based or quick, I love a poem. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if it's like a story that involves, you know, a, a squirrel or something, I can write mm -hmm. that for children. Right. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting. And then this was like a story that just jumped out at me as a novel. It just it had like the length of time. It had multiple problems, and I, I just saw it as a novel. I, I wrote it as a short story. It just didn't work, you know. Mm -hmm. And I could have written it as a short story, but it would have been very small. So. Yeah, it is kind of about the work telling me, hey, this is. That's why I think it works well. I don't know. Sometimes things are more cinematic. You know, there's more external drama, that kind of stuff. It's interesting to me. And yeah, I just, I think for me, I feel like a new person, right? A new mm. genre. So that helps me feel like I'm still a writer, but I'm not. Uh, bored of the thing I just did. Right. It feels like if I write poetry, I'm a whole new man than I am writing oh, wow. kids books. It's very weird. Wow, yeah, so I can imagine though. I can imagine how it would feel that way. And it yeah, must it's feel very like, freeing. Yeah, yeah, it's freeing. So I have um, a friend who finally got through a novel um, and said, I never want to do that again. Um, and I think a lot of the, my writing students are very intimidated by the idea of writing a novel. It seems like this really huge undertaking, very intimidating and nerve wracking. And then, as I said, I've had writer friends who've done it and said, it's too much for me. I don't want to do that. So how do you feel having written and put a novel into the world? Are you, are you liking this? Do you want to do it again? Yeah, I think, you know, having it come out helps. It's like a good encouragement mm -hmm. with short stories and poems and things. You do get the pat on the back a lot more frequently. So that <laughs> sustains you. You get to come up for okay. air and you get to take a right. deep breath and enjoy it. With the novel, you pretty much just put your head down and come out right. like seven years later. And, you you know, someone had a line about it's like telling a joke and waiting seven years to hear someone laugh. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit how it feels with writing a novel. So having just come out with one, um, you feel like, oh, I could do that again. But mm -hmm. And I do have an idea for one, but I'm not going to tackle it for like a couple of years, I think, or maybe a year. Just give myself a little bit of time to do some other stuff um, because it is a daunting process. Yeah. So can you, you know? tell us some, I, what, what's yeah. happening next week? I mean, like I said, I'm imagining by the time I <laughs> will make myself a sandwich after this meeting, you're going to have a new book in the world. That's so, very sweet. So what's next? Um, so for, with this novel, I, uh, I don't even know if it's like in a place to talk about it yet because it's such a or, mess. Or anything that you're, or what oh. are you thinking about doing next? Yeah, well, right now I've written a screenplay. Oh, wow. Um, oh, that's one. That's when you haven't, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's so, so that one, I'm, I like, I'm talking to a man right now who's a producer and we'll, we'll see what kind of transpires with that, but that would be fun. 
-hmm. that was a fun exercise. And that was, again, like a story that spoke to me. And I just said, oh, I feel like this is a cinematic thing. It kind Mm -hmm. of like fought in my mind for a while if I wanted to make it a novel or a screenplay. And it still might become a novel at some point. We'll see what Mm -hmm. happens with that. That world is so different. Um, But yeah, I think that's kind of next for me. Yeah. Okay. And um, I think that that's it. I have so many more questions, but I will hopefully be able to buy you a coffee at some point and ask them. Okay. Yeah, the- I have a lot of questions for you too. What are you working on, Mark? So I I have a book that's finished. I have a novel that's finished and I, I have an agent. Wonderful. Uh, and we're doing our final uh, run-throughs and hopefully we're going to try to put it in the world uh, or try to sell it in the next in the next little while. So I'm in the, yes, I'm in the depths of revision, um, but I have another novel that I want to work on um, as well. It's poking at me, so I give it attention can. Um, But you've really inspired me with this idea of doing lots of things, but I just don't feel like, I mean, every time I try to write poetry, it's hideous. So I'm pretty much, you know, sticking to short stories and and essays and and things. You do a lot of things, yeah. You do a lot of yeah. things as well. And I, I bet there's, you know, a lot of people say that about poetry, but then you read their novel and I can like highlight huge passages that are all poetry. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'll do that with you too. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that. I, I really love language both as a writer and a reader. So whenever I write my fiction, I'm always very conscious of, of what I'm doing with language. And so mm-hmm. I, I, would, I hope that people feel that way. Uh, yeah, when, they, totally. when they read my work. So yeah, so hopefully within the next uh, couple of years, you and I can meet over a, a yes. of, of this book coming into the world. And in the meantime, yeah, I'm just- And yours on. maybe, that would be yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, let's have that. Let's yeah, have that. Let's, we'll have a de- let's hope though that we get to see each other before the second book. Yes, before I would, comes out, that would, I be would agree. We're yes. home for too long, but- um, Yes, I agree. Really great book. Um, I'm so happy for you. It was such a pleasure to read and such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad it brought us together. Um, Me too. Since I haven't been able to see you for a while. Um, and good luck. Are you going to be doing other events that we can we can sort of keep an eye on and see what you're doing? Yeah, if you follow me on the social media stuff, um, writes from LA, writes with the W, is my uh, my ridiculous handle. I think is what the kids call it. Okay. And there you can see these events that are coming up. I have something on Thursday at uh, the Riverside Library. That's a Zoom event, free, and I guess this will be the, the way of the world now. You know, yeah, for a little for a little while. So it's kind of fun, though. Yeah, and at least we yeah. get to have it. At least we get to we get to it hear is. each other, and and hopefully lots of people will will read this really great book. It's really fantastic. Oh. Congratulations, and thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Laura. There's no one I'd rather do this with, so I appreciate you taking the time to do it. You too. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Laura and Matthew. Uh, That was wonderful. Uh, Again, the novel is Heaven and Other Zip Codes. Uh, You can purchase it online um, at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for listening, and um, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.